0: Hi, I'm Elin Miller, and this is Everyday Reconciliation. This podcast is a hands-on look at reconciliation. What it means, why it's important, and what everyday actions non-indigenous people, like me, can take as part of this national project. As you can hear, I'm a settler. I immigrated to Canada in 2008, and now live in Ottawa, on the traditional unceded territory of the Anishinaabe-Algonquian nation. This is our last episode of Everyday Reconciliation. I've learned so much over the course of these 10 conversations and I really hope you have as well. And also that you had a chance to reflect on the role that you can play in this process. We talked about a lot of different aspects of reconciliation but there's one really fundamental thing that we haven't talked much about. Economic reconciliation. I wanted to learn more about what economic reconciliation involves and get a better sense of how it can and should fit into all conversations around reconciliation and actions that we can all be taking. So joining us today is Chief Lian Zhou, or Shupailamat which is her Squamish name. She is transformative storyteller for economic reconciliation with Simon Fraser University and one of 16 hereditary chiefs of the Squamish First Nation. Hello and welcome to the show. Good morning. It's very nice to have you here. No churchman
1: Wahatch. Oh siam, thank you. I appreciate the space to uh, share some uh, words of wisdom with you today. I'm glad to have
0: you here. Um, can you tell me a bit about yourself and your background? So
1: my name is Shupela Matsyem. That's my ancestral name. That's my Sculptmish, aka Squamish, ancestral name. Mm-hmm. My in- given English name is Chief Leanne Joe. I am one of 16 hereditary chiefs of the Sculptmish Nation, also known as the Squamish Nation, on the beautiful West Coast shores of, of uh, the Greater Vancouver area. I am also uh, a descendant of the tsleil Nation, also known as the Burrard community, our sister nation, uh, our neighboring community to Skoltmish. Um, I am a descendant of the Thomas family um, from that community. So my late father's uh, mother comes from uh, tsleil mm-hmm. I, I am also a descendant of the Kwakwakiwak speaking people from the East Coast Shores of Vancouver Island. I carry an ancestral name of Kwisolauk. This is given to me by my Chichia, Uh, my late grandmother, my mother's mother. And I come from the Wilson and Frank families uh, from the, again, uh, East Coast shores of uh, of Vancouver Island. And so in sharing that, uh, that tells you uh, my kinship ties uh, Mm -hmm. to the West Coast. So in short, I could be uh, pretty much related to... um, a lot of families um, all across the Greater Vancouver area, as well as onto uh, throughout Vancouver Island.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And did you grow up in your culture? Uh, yes, I did. I grew up on in Oslohan, the community of Oslohan, which is is uh, part of the, the North Shore uh, traditional territories of the Skoltish Nation. Um, as you can tell, um, with my ancestral names given to me by two of my families. Um, that I I did. I grew up with a father as a chief. So Shopei Lamat is a feminized version of the same name that my father carried Mm -hmm. and is synonymous with the one who carries the title of being head of the family. So the Siam at the end of my name, when you hear that, tells you uh, the role I play in the community, of being head of the family. Or in English words, it would mean, you know, for a lack of a better translation, chief. Mm -hmm. Right. And like I said, I'm a hereditary chief. I am not an elected chief, um, nor do I play as a hereditary chief, because the Indian Act doesn't recognize hereditary title. Um, I have no influence on the uh, political governance uh, and day to day affairs of the community. Um, I would need to run for council uh, to be able to have that kind of influence over the community right? So uh-huh. I don't, I'm not in the day-to-day affairs of the community. I grew up in ceremony um, through uh, both my parents, all of, all of our cultures, and it very much has guided um, the development of who I am, um, how I am, um, how I want to be in the world, and the legacy I want to leave for my son, uh, my, uh, my beautiful, amazing son, um Isaac who's going to be uh 15 uh, very shortly mm. and he's growing into his young manhood now mm-hmm. and without his culture and um without his kinship ties either in his an ongoing reciprocal uh relationship to uh, the land and our culture um I would not know what I know today um mm-hmm. so yeah do you do you speak in the squamish <clears throat> I do not. Um, I speak very little. I, I, can, I understand more than I speak, um, and I don't speak any of our languages uh, because of residential school. Mm-hmm. I am the first generation removed from residential school, meaning that both my parents went to residential school. Uh, all of my aunts and uncles went to residential school. My grandparents went to residential school my great, uh, great-grandparents went to residential school. And as a result of, of being in that space, um, that my grandmother uh, and grandparents uh, did not transfer uh, the knowledge of the language to my parents, um, nor to me. Mm-hmm. And that is one great, great immense sadness um, that I think many of us carry uh, from the legacy left behind from residential schools is uh, that many of us don't speak the language uh, fluently and are working diligently um, to try to rectify that and try to save our languages. Um, And I say that, you know, literally save our languages because my grandmother, so my mother's mother was the last speaker of that dialect of quawowok. Mm. So nobody else. Mm-hmm.
0: So today we're going to talk about economic reconciliation. Um, can you define to our listeners what that is what is what does it mean and why is it important?
1: I'm not a fan of strict definitions and I personally have not defined what economic reconciliation is um, because I don't think it creates, space for flexibility, adaptation, transformation, curiosity in the space of economic reconciliation or any reconciliation. Because when you're defining in particular a colonial language like English, that which can be very limiting from an indigenous person's uh, worldview, lens, value system, we indigenous people uh, on Turtle Island have a reciprocal relationship and responsibility and accountability to all living creatures, Mother Earth, the four elements, and the ancestors, and to the people yet to be, right? Mm-hmm. Through our world view, um, economic reconciliation is is wealth and well being, and they're hand in hand, which means. My spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, um, systems are connected to all those things and we are all thriving. Mm -hmm. We're not in competition. We're not competing for the best bottom line. We're not competing for tax breaks, right? We're talking about this place in our hearts, um, that is filled with immense love and, uh, empathy and compassion and, again, respect and responsibility and accountability um, beyond ourselves. So economic reconciliation isn't about just having Indigenous people and First Nation communities participate in the current economic system as it stands today, which has literally stripped us of everything and continues to oppress us every single day. If we were to talk about true economic reconciliation, we're talking about not only us thriving in your wealth space, but also giving us um, a seat um, in every space and taking up that space for our worldview to transform um, what a future economic state would look like in this country. So economic development rooted in in culture. Culture, values, worldview, right? I can't stress worldview enough because if you're, it's like saying, you know, I want to be um, inclusive, equitable, anti-racist and um, be in social justice or in all of those spaces, but only solely looking at it through your lens, Mm -hmm. through your culture, through your patriarchy, through, you know, just Mm -hmm. a place of privilege and not seeing beyond that privilege,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? So this comes down to the core of us as human beings.
0: Why do we need economic reconciliation in the first place? So um, I assume the impacts of colonialism in the Indian Act um, on your own source revenue and your economic opportunities. It's a way of it addressing that also.
1: It, yeah, it's in part addressing the wealth aspect. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm going to always going to keep come back to economic reconciliation also includes well-being, right? It's not yeah. just the wealth, um, you know. So again, they have to go hand in hand. There's so many things to address: <laughs> colonization, right, the Indian Act, and all of the other acts that go in hand with the Indian Act. Um, you know, we talk about DRIPA and Undrip, and TRC calls to action and the calls to justice, and but you're still you're still funneling it, you know, through this space of and a very oppressed and racist piece of legislation called the Indian Act, mm-hmm. right? No, there's no other Canadian in this country that's governed by such an act other than indigenous peoples. Right. Right.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the link between economic reconciliation and self-determination?
1: They, they're absolutely hand in hand. Everything is reciprocal. Everything is tied together, right? There isn't this linear definition of what um, self-governance is and what um self-determination is and what reconciliation is and what economic reconciliation is and wealth and well-being they're all tied together so my self-determination, my nation's abilities to self-govern um, is literally tied to again economic reconciliation and our, absolute equal and inclusive participation in the current economic state whilst also being able to transform what that future economic state might be mm-hmm. and could be, right? Mm-hmm.
0: And why should economic reconciliation be important to non-Indigenous Canadians?
1: The honest truth? Mm-hmm. Please. You are going to be either in court with us. You're going to be a partner with us. Uh, you're going to be in negotiations with us. Or you're going to be working for us. That's it. There's no ends, ifs, or buts about it. We're the <laughs> largest growing population in the country. Mm-hmm. There are more Indigenous youth. Um, than ever before. They're, They're more progressive in their thought process and thought leadership around economic reconciliation and what that means for them. So without being in the space of economic reconciliation, truly looking about how do you be an ally, How do you participate, how do you create equal inclusive opportunities in collaboration and partnership with Indigenous peoples, First Nation communities, then again, you're going to find yourself, I guess, left in the dark. Mm
0: -hmm. There's also so much to learn from Indigenous peoples, from your worldview and from responsible economic development
1: sustainability from a non-indigenous worldview to an indigenous worldview is very different, right? They're very, very different. I mean, that's, we have to acknowledge that our worldviews are different, right? And that, you know, science is a certain way of viewing things. And we have science within our own um worldviews and ways of being and doing in our culture. Um, but again, it's not the only aspect of our worldview. Right. Um, there are many spaces that make up that collective of that worldview to make these practices and decision making and governance um different. Because when I make a decision, um, whether it's based on uh anything, For the wealth and well-being of my community, the wealth and well-being of my son, it also goes hand in hand with all of the legacy that my ancestors have left me, but also the legacy that I'm leaving for seven generations from now. So I understand that the responsibility that I have is not only, again, just for today, it's for time immemorial. The ripple effects of that legacy will be held in my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. Was that seven? I'm guessing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, You mentioned before um, UNRIP, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's call to Action 92 to the corporate sector calls on the sector to apply UNRIP. And then with Bill C-15 from June last year, the federal government has committed to harmonize Canadian laws with UNDRIP. So what does all this mean for economic development and economic opportunities for Indigenous peoples in Canada?
1: I'm too minded about legislation. I'm too minded about Crown Indigenous relations. Uh, I'm too minded about the commitment of, of, you know, in particular, federal government's space of, of... It's easy to put in legislation, right? I mean... And it's easy to hold that legislation we still have the indian act right right Hmm. that is everything that shouldn't be for indigenous peoples for any free citizen of this country but it still is and i again i'm just going to be honest i mean just given the track record um i hold space for hope I have faith in the possibilities. I have faith in the opportunity. I have faith um, that we have the wherewithal to sit at that table to create those opportunities. I have no doubt in my mind that greatness is possible with those opportunities because of DRIPA, because of UNDRIP, Um, but at the end of the day, Government isn't in control of the economy and the economic opportunities that happen on the ground. I'm not going to not say that it has opened up a door uh, for us and that there are um, absolute possibilities out there uh, for greater success than than there has ever been before but again, we're still limited by the Indian Act, right? We can't discount that just because there's, you know, UNDRIP doesn't mean that we still aren't governed by the Indian Act that creates extreme limitations on capital investment, borrowing, um, development opportunities, because many of our communities still live in poverty, still live without clean drinking water, are forced to live on the reserve to get federal dollars, right? Um mm-hmm. And so, again, I see the limitations, but I also see the hope um, of what's possible. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say and share um, the, the idea of, and, uh, and the ability to really investigate land back, right? If we're talking about true economic reconciliation, we have to be talking about land back mm-hmm. and, and what that means. Mm-hmm. And and what's possible from that space? What what would it mean to you to truly uh, give land back? Give me back Vancouver. Mm-hmm. That's the short answer. <laughs> and, and then the long answer. Uh, I know it's that's not physically possible, right? You know, I know the mm-hmm. reality. I know in my heart I would, you know, never displace any individual from where they live, work, and play. Um, but, you know, why could we not be, um, say, in say tripartite government? We have the federal government, the provincial government, and then we have indigenous government. Why can't we, as a country, um, have that governance space so that you're inclusively including? Um, an indigenous world view in the governance of this country, which then directly influences um, municipality space, TNRD space, or uh, regional development space, sorry, and uh, the like around economic development opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. And, and look to, I mean, look at concrete examples of Musqueam, tsleil tooth and Squamish partnerships and the development of, Um, you know, land uh, that we've purchased, land that we've negotiated, lands that are include additions to reserves um, as, you know, potential opportunities uh, for economic growth in the greater Vancouver area um, as a foundational place to, again, look at what are the possibilities around Could there be more land back opportunities? Can we give them, you know, rather than purchase back the land that was stolen from us, just give us back the land to develop. Mm -hmm. And if that can't happen, where can we then play an equal role as a majority owner partner in economic development spaces that include land, right? Because everything is based on land in -hmm. this country, right? And then how do we include, again, an indigenous world view and place of st- sustainability within that development. Can you tell me a bit about the
0: Senac development in Vancouver? It's on it's on the Squamish reserve land, so it's yes, not. It is. Um can you just talk a little bit about, about that and maybe the reactions <clears throat> from the city of Vancouver and, and local residents?
1: Again, my honest opinion is. Um, I'm sorry you feel bad that we are on an equal playing field, economically develop the pitiful little bits of land um, that have been given us, to us by the federal government um, but it is also my prerogative as a Canadian to develop said lands and create um, opportunities for ongoing housing crisis needs being met, um, economic development opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities, jobs, and again, wealth
0: for my community. Just for our listeners, is a development um, of 6,000 um, housing units, environmentally uh, sustainably built as much as possible, I understand.
1: Yes, and it's going to be, go to sanak.com. I mean, everything that you need to know about the history of the lands, about the development of the lands, about the sustainability of that land development, um, the rental affordable um, housing that's going to be available to everybody Uh is all listed on on the SNAC website Uh um, for you to find out more. Um, And again, um, it's just a space... (sighs) where again we get to play in an equal playing field as 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 every other vancouverite BCer, and canadian citizen in this country mm-hmm. it's a really cool project it looks it looks really cool too the design um, yeah it of is the because, buildings because we're leading it right um you know where can you say that we have where in canada can you say that any indigenous nation has led housing development on such a mass scale ever in our lifetime, Mm -hmm. right? So, and the fact that we're leading it as indigenous people, as Squamish people um, gives us the depth to really look at um, our worldview, our way of being, our way of doing into um, a project um, that allows us to, to define what it is without restrictions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be beautiful. Um, and the fact that, you know, we're, it's a way of giving back, right? Um, again, because Vancouver is, is in such a dire housing crisis at the yeah. moment that, yeah. you know.
0: And it's, uh, it's exciting. And it's also, I mean, it will hopefully generate revenue
1: to for you to invest in your community absolutely the the possibilities become endless economically like if we're talking about you know a bottom line um, the wealth creation um, from just this one project alone creates ripple effects for other economic development opportunities um, within the nation as well, as contributes to every space, um, you know, in your in in a colonial way, socially to the community, right? So we get more education funding, we get more housing funding, we get more governance monies, we get more infrastructure funding, we get um, language funding, we get more uh, funds for social health. Recreation, sport, you name it, right? Mm-hmm. You, the impact of that wealth generation impacts a millionfold the well being of myself, my son, and the many generations to come. Mm-hmm. And I think that's greater than the actual money itself. Right. But
0: if you do want to focus on the money, it must also be. Um, it's also um, an opportunity to decrease the cost of federal programs that deal with the consequences of poverty. So, I'm am thinking for non-Indigenous Canadians, they this is also um, an economic opportunity to decrease costs for uh, for those programs federally, right?
1: Yeah, possibly, um, but it's not like there's. A- billions of dollars rolling into the Squamish nation um, or any nation because uh, all federal funding is on a per capita basis. Mm -hmm. I don't live on my reserve, which means I'm not counted. Even though I'm a member of that nation, I'm not counted in the funding that's provided to my community for anything. Not education, not housing, not infrastructure, nothing. I'm not counted. Mm -hmm. nor is my son. So yeah, if we're talking about strict money, you are gonna see a decrease, but I don't want Canadians thinking, you know, that there's this, you know, pots of money are just being thrown at us to solve this poverty crisis. Um, uh, And that it's gonna be solved because, you know, we as a nation Um, don't rely on federal government funding for anything all of our wealth is generated by um, the income that we're deriving through economic development opportunities aside from federal government funding
0: yeah i don't think that's uh, all that well known so how do you see um, the future like what are the building blocks toward economic reconciliation. How do we move from where we are, um, economically and socially in indigenous communities today to where we want to be, to
1: where you want to be? Relationships. It's as simple as that, building relationships. How many Canadians can say they know an indigenous person and have a true meaningful relationship with an indigenous person? both professionally and personally. Start there. What does that look like? What do you want that to be? How meaningful do you want it to be? What kind of ally do you want to be? What kind of actions do you need to take to make that happen? What are you absolutely committed to to make that happen, right? Reconciliation happens because we create space for that relationship building, for healing, for forgiveness, for truth-telling, for the rawness that comes with the truth-telling and the healing and the forgiveness. And then we can build from there. Mm -hmm. But if we don't have an equal footing in the relationship, right, then at the end of the day, we're trying to achieve something expecting different results but not really changing much of of anything right like uh, it, when we were when we held a convening for economic reconciliation because i've been writing a framework on economic reconciliation for bc and in our convening one of the participants um summed it up nicely that reconciliation is sprinkles on the cupcake hmm. we haven't really changed the foundation of the cupcake we just continue to throw sprinkles on it, thinking that we're gonna get something different, right? And that, you know, and, and so much of reconciliation in this country has been, not all, but a majority that has been is solutions. Let's get to the solution. What are the solutions? How much time is it gonna take? What are the boxes that I need to take to get there, right? What is the prescribed method? There is none. It's hard work. It's hard work and being in the space of knowing the truth. But I'm really asking Canadians through economic reconciliation to really look at the foundation. What are you contributing to those ingredients and changing them so that the cupcake itself changes? Because that's what this is going to be. This is what this has to be. Or our children and grandchildren and great grandchildren are going to be continuing these conversations that you and I are having today. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying that great things aren't happening; they are. There are great partnerships between industry, between you know uh, government and particular communities in the country, uh, between you know corporations and economic development corporations within First Nation communities. There are wonderful, beautiful, amazing, great things going on that are transforming this space as we speak. So your advice to non-Indigenous Canadians, just people like me,
0: what can we do um, to help advance economic reconciliation? Do you have any concrete things that people can sort of do on a daily basis?
1: Oh, numerous things. Do you know? (laughs) Do you know what the Indian Act is? If you don't find out, basically educate yourself mm-hmm. in every way possible. Deep listening. Listen deeply in and uninhibited, not with the space to react, but just to deep listen to the truth. Right? Um, and what that truth is. And then deeper listening when it comes to How can I be an allyship with you as indigenous peoples um, to reconcile here and now? Mm -hmm. We can't do anything about the past, right? Because that's history, but we can do something about the future and and be curious about what that is. And then be curious, create spaces of curiosity in a worldview that isn't colonized in patriarchy, in power, in control, but in equal and inclusive spaces where everybody wins. We're creating win-win situations. We're creating two-eyed seeing in governance and in economic development and social justice and sustainability. We're using the two-eyed seeing in all of these things, meaning we're blending an indigenous worldview Indigenous values, uh, indigenous ways of knowing and being into and with and coinciding the benefits of a non-indigenous worldview and scientific methods or economic development methods and and finding the spaces where we all exist and create um, wealth generation and more so well-being um, for ourselves today but in a different way for our future state. I don't give concrete tick boxing. If you do these things, you're reconciled. Indigenous people hold the space of dealing with the Indian Act, dealing with it, you know, everything that comes with it, right? Um, And all of the spaces that come with it and all of the other acts that come in conjunction with the Indian Act. There's a weight that I carry every single day as an indigenous woman as a mother as a as a as a leader that's why i say do your part as a as a, as a canadian so that i don't have to do that part for you i don't have space to console you in your grief in your sadness in your potential guilt in the truth because i live with that every single day as an indigenous person And I'm asking the everyday Canadian citizen to really dig deep and learn what it is to hold that space for yourself. So that when I'm holding space, when, say for example, when another First Nation comes out and gives you their number, and when my nation comes out and gives its number of child's graves that were found at the day school and or residential school in our communities, because it's going to continue, because we know that to be true. And we've always known it to be true. And now the Canadians are finding out it's the truth. But as that truth keeps coming out, I am in a space of how do I deal with my own grief and trauma um, of these findings and the space of what it's like to know that I may not have existed if that was my mom or my dad or my grandparent or my great grandparents, because I had aunts that did not come back from residential school. Mm -hmm. I have community members whose family did not come back from residential school. And I have to hold the space, um, not only for myself, but a mother who's a residential school survivor, who lived this experience, feels this experience to her core, and is dealing with all of this pain and the suffering and lived trauma again because of these findings. And then I also have to hold space for my son who's learning and trying to reconcile within himself that history and the the truth about that history. And why would human beings do such a thing? So, keep that in mind as a Canadian citizen when you're building relationship with indigenous people. But that's what we're constantly holding on an everyday basis. And when you ask us to reconcile, don't always put the onus on us 100% to do the reconciling and us to take the lead. You are responsible and accountable for yourself to take the lead so that we can continue to do this and be in this space and hopefully find the energy to be able to, um, like we always do, to continue reconciling with you. Again, because we have faith and hope and grace for the possibilities of something better for our children and the seven generations to come.
0: Thank you. That was so
1: beautifully put. I think we should end there. (laughs) My heartfelt gratitude for allowing the creator and my ancestor to share their words of wisdom through me today. um, And that I hope there is some spaces of wisdom, knowledge, um, and space for learning um, in what I shared today. And I share because I know that one day my son is gonna listen to this and know that I played a part and I want him to witness me playing a part um, in what's possible and uh, for his future. So I close with that. Right. Thank
0: you so much. I learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners did too. Uh, thank you. Thank, you.
1: thank you. you. You raise your hands when you say you. You I mean, it's your You're grateful. Chief Joe asked,
0: do you know what the Indian Act is? I'm not an expert, but I learned a lot from a book I read a couple of years back, 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act by Bob Joseph. I really recommend this book. You can also read the Act itself on the Department of Justice's webpage. While the most appalling provisions have been repealed, you would be surprised at the restrictions imposed still today on First Nations and how much the federal government decides for them. Read a section called Management of Indian Monies. I think I gave my children more autonomy in how they spend their money. There's also a section called Mentally Incompetent Indians. It's gross. I highly recommend learning more about the Indian Act, an inherently racist document, if you want to understand the relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous people in Canada. I expected Chief Joe's recommendations to be specific to economic reconciliation. But I realized I was thinking about it all wrong. Economic reconciliation isn't different from everyday reconciliation. They go hand in hand. I guess my worldview is still pretty colonized. Chief Joe reminds us to think a bit differently. Imagine systems that are equal and inclusive, where everybody wins. From the very beginning of this series, we've been told by our guests to educate ourselves, to listen, to watch, to learn. Some of my own key takeaways are to continue to ask questions. The only questions I regret are the ones I didn't ask. I will also continue to reach out to get to know more indigenous people, and I will keep reflecting on my own place in all of this. We must all own this process, even when the truth is ugly and we all have an important role to play. It is our shared history and our common future. I've learned so many things, including how much I don't know and may never learn, but that's okay. It's the process that never ends, as the Right Honourable Mary Simon told us. This is our last episode. It's been a pleasure to share these conversations with you. I hope you have enjoyed them and thanks for listening. I also want to thank the team at Canada 2020, Aisha, Carolyn and Anna. I could not have done this podcast without their support. Thanks also to our our amazing guests who have shared their personal experiences and taught us so much. I think Chief Lee and Joe left us with a really important question to end on. Let's promise to always keep asking ourselves, how can I be an ally? Everyday Reconciliation is brought to you by Canada 2020. The show is edited by Ross Clark and produced by me, Eileen Miller, along with Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jara. The artwork was designed by Sylvie Levegui, and the music was produced by Marius Miller. A final thank you to Rio Tinto for sponsoring this series. It couldn't have happened without their support. That's all from us at Everyday Reconciliation. Thanks for listening.